Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 37 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think today's show is cooking MCs like a pound of bacon. My thanks to Vanilla Ice for the inspiration there. For the second time in Hypnosis Weekly history, I present to you a special edition of our favourite hypnosis podcast, quite unlike our usual format of the show. Today I welcome back Jürgen Rasmussen and Craig Galvin as we enter into three wholly separate, unprepared debates relating to the field of hypnosis, and there are some beautiful pearls about to be discovered here today. As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, please do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So today's show is simply divided into three distinct discussion segments, each either led by myself, Jürgen or Craig. None of us knew what the other was going to ask or suggest as a discussion. This week, there'll be no hypnosis in the news or my usual factoid of the week. They'll return next time. The show format from here is simply divided into three sections where each of us led a discussion and each section will be separated with our usual music break. I hope you enjoy what's in store here. I'll be back to round things up and see you safely to the door at the end of today's show as usual. For now, get comfy, my friends. Turn up the volume. Sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's discussions. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to be here with Craig Galvin and Jürgen Rasmussen. And uh, we're going to be talking about a number of different topics, uh, each led by, uh, by ourselves. And I'm going, to, I'm going to start the ball rolling. I mean, first of all, welcome, Craig. Welcome back, Jürgen. Thanks, Adam. Um, um, so, I want to talk about... There's, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of debate about what people think is most important about being a hypnotherapist in terms of experience, knowledge 
or practical skills. Um, so, you know, of course, throughout my own my own training college, I encounter a lot of students and a lot of recently qualified hypnotherapists, um, as well as, you know, speaking at events and so on. I meet a lot of uh, hypnotherapists and, and a lot of them seem to think that they are at a disadvantage when it comes to setting up their business as they have little experience to talk about or draw upon. Now, for me, this is not necessarily about this is not a discussion about about being in business. Um, and and I, I think I have an opinion that might potentially be seen as quite controversial with regards to this, because I think that that experience is experience as a hypnotherapist is only truly valuable if you've really engaged in a process of experiential learning along the way and you've reviewed your own experience objectively. Um, this field, you know, the field of hypnotherapy has a lot of people in it who make claims or offer opinions. And then they support that claim or the opinion with statements like, well, I've been doing it this way for 30 years. And, and that somehow makes it the best thing to do because they've been doing it for all this time. And, and that's what they're talking about with regards to experience. Um, um, and and and. You know, just because it was the, you know, just because it worked well for them for thirty years, one of my, one of my, my, my theories here, one of my points is that somehow that's considered to be the best thing for everybody else to do as well. So something might have been effective for one individual for thirty years, perhaps because of their own level of belief invested in it, or because they they congruently apply it. And in turn, that might even help develop the placebo effect of what they've been doing. However, someone else um, without the same level of belief may not be able to get those same results or without the same style or degree of conviction in what they're doing. And, you know, so I don't necessarily think that doing something the same way for 30 years is, is necessarily a sign of expertise. I think experience will help people develop soft skills, you know, incredibly important stuff, interpersonal skills, help individuals to settle into the role of a hypnotherapist. It'll also make them more confident about drawing upon that experience if the situation becomes demanding. But I don't think it's the most important facet to, to being successful as a hypnotherapist, especially if someone is not engaging in reflective practice or perhaps some quality supervision or discussion with, with professional peers. So when it comes to examining experience, knowledge or practical skills and which is the most useful, I also encounter a lot of, you know, a lot of other training establishments that perhaps criticise too heavy an emphasis upon theory. So many training establishments that I've encountered talk about learning skills and learning practical applications of those skills. And that's the most important aspect of, of our work, that by knowing how to practically apply interventions, that's going to lead to the most benefit for our clients. And I, I also dispute this slightly, because I think that if you understand how something works... If you understand the underlying principles, you know, the mechanisms that, that, that make it effective, then you can learn and adapt. And I think it's a much stronger foundation upon which to apply your practical skills. Um, I, I shared a meme um, at the end of January. It was an, a, an Isaac Asimov quote. 
um, where he made reference to um, to there being a cult of ignorance and anti-intellectualism in political and cultural life. Yet I shared it because I see the very same thing happening in the field of hypnotherapy. And that is people adopting a really blasé attitude towards having a depth of knowledge or a depth of theoretical underpinning. You know, so I think experience does make us better. Okay, I think practical skills are incredibly important. Of course they are. We'd be nowhere without them. But for me, they are both fed by a good academic grounding, um, um, ideally an an adherence to, to, to the evidence base or a depth of knowledge so that we know how what we do works how it works for example in order that we can then fuel the other things so my question that that i offer up to you you know what do you think is most important out of experience knowledge or practical skills when it comes to being a hypnotherapist and and would you mind just you know embellishing and explaining a little bit about your reasons why um who'd like to go first um, I'll, I'll jump in. That's that's, that's right. fine with me. Not a problem. Um, firstly, great question. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and the reason I think it's great is because myself and yourself and Gary and I know Jorgen um, and many others also question a lot online um, yeah. with regards to these kind of methods, and we see things you know every single day. Um, but one of the things we most come across is people saying, I've tried X and it doesn't work. Is there anything else that I can do? Mm. Um, and not that it's it's a bugbear because we all have to start somewhere and we still get those, those times in therapy with people that we're working with where something doesn't work. Mm. Um, but for me personally, I'm always stripping down what I do. I'm looking at how it works, why it works. Can it be made more effective? And when I first started this, I think I said kind of on the last, the last podcast that I spent a good two years pretty much solid running out, testing, trying everything that I'd read in a book that I was taught on a course, left, right and centre. And to be fair, not everything worked as it, as it was taught in a class. Mm. So I wanted to know why. And it wasn't until I started speaking to Gary and delving into anxieties and phobias and you know that that sort of issue that we realize that the fast phobia cure doesn't work with anticipatory anxiety Mm. so by breaking that down we could find out what would be you know kind of more applicable to use and how to distinguish between the two so for me practical experience yes it, it it obviously does hold weight because the more you see the same type of problem the more you're going to understand how to work with it which which is great but I think if we don't have an underlying methodology as to break things down, how to break things down and understand why it works, then if something doesn't happen the way it's supposed to, in inverted commas, in a therapy room, then we're basically at a dead end. For me sure. personally, I always want to know how it works, why it works, how many people will it work with, is there a way that I can refine it? And recently I've seen a lot of people saying, well, theory is all well and good, um, but science isn't much better. Mm. But not understanding the fact that science is not, it's not a given thing. It's not written in stone. 
it's merely a set of processes whereby we can look at what's going on and find a more efficient way to be able to do things better. Sure. Um, so for me, practical experience, yes, it does come in there. However, I firmly believe that we should continue to study what it is that we do, how it works, how it can be refined, how it will apply to not just an individual, but anybody who's teaching also, because as I've gone through your kind of online course and I've looked and, you know, the majority of the stuff that was in there wasn't taught to me when I was starting. Um, and I've been doing this seven, eight years now. Mm. Um, and the majority of it, I look, and I didn't know that. And it, it could be the most simple thing. I've only just started looking into the works of, um, you know, Braid, et cetera, yeah. as, as I kind of found online. Yeah. And to find out that suggestion-based, you know, techniques were being used back in 1846. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, we're looking now and everybody's debating processes and protocols and this is a must and that's needed when that was debunked 160 years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, you know, it's it's all very well. We know we can get results with suggestion. But yeah. at the end of the day, if it's not congruent with the client's problem or, you know, what it is they think, how they react, you know, what it's supposed to do in terms of technique... Yeah. then we'll literally just run into a brick wall. Yeah. So I think it is a combination of all of those factors, and you shouldn't necessarily rule out one more than the other. But for me, the underpinning of everything is literally finding out why it works, how it works, to be better placed to apply the right technique at the right time for the right person, etc. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I, yeah, I, I really appreciate what you said there, Craig. Um, um, so, so Jürgen, um, um, in your opinion experience or knowledge or practical skills as far as hypnotherapy is concerned which which do you think is 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 more important perhaps none of them or or some uh uh some combination um mm -hmm. you know a, a few years ago i i read a really interesting book uh called um why people believe weird things mm. by michael Shermer. And he, he, he has a really interesting chapter in the book about why smart people uh, often believe stupid things. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, and this, this really fascinated me because if, if you look around, you know, you, you, you can see some really, you know, traditionally, however you slice it up, intelligent people who believe in the most stupid stuff imaginable and, and they seem almost immune to, to be able to see through those beliefs. It's, it's not as if their intelligence is necessarily helping them out. Mm. And, and Shermer's answer to this was essentially that, okay, we, we, we have a believing brain, you know, uh, that, that we have a tendency to believe first and then use our reasoning skills and, and intelligence to, to create a narrative and a watertight story that, that kind of protects the belief or, or explains the belief. Yeah. And, and, and that smart people often believe in stupid things as a result of them ending up believing in the stuff for non-smart reasons to begin with. And then the alleged intelligence gets used to rationalize and justify and, and defend the beliefs. Mm. And, and, and as a result, they're often better at defending the beliefs than perhaps people who aren't 
quite that quick. Yes. Uh, and the, the the reason I mention this also in terms of in terms of uh, experience is I would be really curious to know if perhaps, and I'm not going to claim this, but perhaps some people actually get worse with a lot of experience. I, I saw some studies showing that that, for example, high court judges with decades of experience actually got worse at decision making and mm. and decept and and being able to detect deception than they were earlier and and this is so counterintuitive because you, you would imagine that you know with, with decades of experience on the bench you, you'd get really really good at at you know telling apart who's telling the truth who's lying yeah but 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 of course the problem being that they have a lot of faith in their own intelligence, their own education, uh, and they're likely listening along well-used tracks, meaning they're not necessarily listening anymore because they've heard it all. Yeah. And and therefore they more easily jump to conclusions and and are likely less likely to be challenged by their peers for those conclusions either. Mm. Uh, and a third thing I'd, I'd add before I kind of wrap it up into something coherent, uh, hopefully, <laughs> is, uh, is th there, there's a psychologist by the name of Robin Dawes who wrote a book called House of Cards about 20 years ago. Don't know if mm. you guys had read it. Yes. But but he he pointed out that that psychologists and psychotherapists uh, generally did not get better with experience. Mm. Um, and and also that you know clinical psychologists who, who had a degree d did not do any better than people who didn't have a degree you know just regular psychotherapists so I I deeply suspect that you know in in, in addition to you know the, the the scientific process if if you look at some of the values behind that process. I think there are some values of, of curiosity, um, mm. you know, caring for evidence, caring for truth, wanting to really passionately with curiosity and playfulness and decisiveness, wanting to know how does it work? Is it true? You know, might I be deceiving myself? And 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 that curiosity, I really think, is the the master key or or the biggie, which I, I think if you have that and you can cultivate it, uh, you're likely to get not only better but also wiser. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 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 on top of it, you know, as as the old saying goes, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm. Uh, and I think you know, j just like with, uh, j just like with at least the Norwegian. Uh, court system. There's th th there's this really interesting thing, you know, where where first of all, it's it's the um, uh, the lawyer at the police station who, who who kind of decides upon the investigation and who leads the investigations, and sometimes in small cities, even is the prosecutor, you know, in 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 courts. 
and and then you have no documentation of of interrogations. You have no no documentation of the uh, the court process. You know whether by writing or audio or video. Uh, and, and and you also have this rule that says that that there's there's something called free evidence evaluation, meaning that if the judges think that someone's guilty, they can essentially say that we find you guilty beyond any reasonable doubt. Mm. And 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 I think you know that's a system that can easily lead to convicting the innocent be, be, because there's really no control checks there. It's it's. It's it's essentially a system where people's confirmation biases, uh, you know, just get supported and reinforced. And I think this happens for most people in the hypnosis industry is they they take relatively quick courses. Uh, they get certified as, you know, a master hypnotist or something like that, which which is really bizarre if you were to think about a master gymnast or mathematician or <laughs> physicist or martial artist after a week or two. You know, m- most people get that that doesn't make sense. But, 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 but I think when people get that diploma in the hypnosis world, cognitive dissonance kicks in. Well, you know, I'm, I'm called a master. You know, I, I have the diploma. I, I've paid my money. And and I think people then too quickly adopt the identity of being an expert and and you know wanting to be right and kind of protecting that that facade. And if people then don't have that curiosity, and and they also ended up on these kind of closed forums where pretty much everyone shares the same beliefs and and they're in this hierarchy of of you know well this is our school this this is how we think you know anyone who thinks differently. Uh, is supposed to get booted or ridiculed. Yeah. Uh, that, that I think you you get the classic. You know, I have thirty years of experience or ten years of experience, but it, it, in reality, it might be one year repeated thirty times. Uh, yeah, that is um, that that sentence was 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 something that that I was going that I was going to revisit. In fact, this notion that um, that you talked about about getting potentially getting worse with experience. You know. I, I, I see it in terms of people getting set in their ways, especially when when, when newly qualified, for example, you know, and, and something goes well, something goes well with a client and or, or one thing worked. And so therefore, decision making for, for the next client with a similar issue becomes I'm going to do that thing because it yeah. worked with someone else. Yeah. Um, um, and the decision making process is no longer critically thinking you know, based neutrally or objectively, um, or really examining it, it is, I feel safe using this because I did this before. And um, and one thing works, so they keep doing it with everyone, uh, without a depth of consideration. And I think one of the things that um, I, you know, I, I think both of both of you demonstrate in in responding and answering to that question is is also an attitude, an attitude of critical thinking, and an attitude of being open to to to, to superseding, yes. and you know to supersede and yielding if if something else is more appropriate or better, rather than just entrenching ourselves in dogma. Because look, you know, I invested in this way of thinking. <laughs> You know, I, I, I've yeah. invested financially. I've invested with my time. I've invested also, you know, in a. It, I, I've kind of. It's it's almost like I, I've joined this gang. You know, I've, I've joined this gang. I've planted my flag in the crowd in in the, in the ground, and therefore that that particular approach 
is is one that I will support and and entrench myself in as opposed to perhaps embracing a wider depth of of other things to look at as well yes. um, so uh, very interesting very interesting to hear that did, did either of you have anything more you wanted to add to that particular one um, just to pick up on your you know your last point of being kind of entrenched in in that one way of thinking um, for me personally i'm i'm as about as curious as you can get mm. um you know i'm never happy as as you well know um to sit there just because someone says to me i've been doing this 25 30 40 years this is how it is this is why it works um i'm still the guy who sits there and says well yes but why mm. you know because i i want to know it's not good enough to just take somebody's word for it and you know, as Jorgen said, people can go on relatively short training courses and get a qualification, you know, for for whatever it's worth these days, which does say master hypnotherapist on it. Um, I know because I've got one of those sat in my cupboard. Um, however, when I came home with that certificate, it was put straight into my cupboard. I was back reading books. I was out testing, playing, working, trying to refine on, you know, what I'd been taught. And obviously, I'd been training and experimenting before i'd actually attended any courses um and i I drove kind of anthony jackwin up the wall asking questions 24 7 yes but why yes but how you know Mm. and only for i was lucky enough before i actually went on a course to speak to people like anthony you know i had that good grounding to to always be able to question um and i've been naturally curious anyway but i think i was lucky to actually find somebody that was willing to guide and help um, and just not give me the answers but point me in this direction and say well have a look at this try this and see what happens and feed back to me um, and that's where you know I learn a lot especially from yourself and Jorgen and Gary and and Anthony etc um, because we all continue to push each other and I think as Jorgen says if you have that curiosity and you're not afraid to ask the questions. Yes, you will get, you know, kicked out from Facebook forums. You you will get told that you're a troublemaker, um, etc. But if it's benefiting what you do, the industry that you work in, and also, you know, the clients that you are going to see, that, in my opinion, you know, isn't a bad thing because their health, welfare, and safety comes paramount to anything else, not your own ego. But, Absolutely. You know. That that that's just my my kind of take on it. And and uh, you know how, how on earth can we ever expect to get any better at what we do if if we're if we're never going to explore or stretch or push those boundaries? Um, um, and you know uh, one of the things Jurgen said there, you know, um, um, that he sees one year of experience repeated thirty times. That's yeah. I, I love that. I love that, and I think that's a really lovely note to end on um, with yeah. this this first segment. Yeah. We will be back in just one minute's time. So we're back and uh, I'm going to hand the, the reins over to Mr. Craig Galvin and hear his question. Over to you, Craig. Brilliant. Thanks, Adam. Um, this is kind of weird, but it does actually tie into to your question to be honest because it's something that we've been kind of debating between the you know the lot of us behind the scenes Mm. is 
we've seen a lot of people going onto short training courses of as Jürgen's already said um and coming away and thinking they can do you know xyz of i mean i've seen things where people wanted to delve into ptsd after training after four days um after after a little mini module um now having seen your your way of training what you do with your students the comprehensive documents the hands-on training and everything that they get um my question would be what in essence is kind of like a two-parter what in essence would you need to teach those people you know who come to you to learn about hypnotherapy and hypnosis to have them going out after you know that short period of time and be able to work effectively not obviously with you know things such as ptsd or alcoholism or anything else um that big to start with but just as a good grounding and foundation base with the ability to be able to question indeed what they've also been taught and not take on board everything they've been told as fact Mm. um and on top of that how do you take those students and get them to continue to evolve what we are doing to be able to push the limits not only of what we believe hypnosis is capable of at this time but also their own ability to be able to continue to push forward for themselves um and for me personally it's what Jorgen's literally pretty much already said coupled with yourself with regards to the curiosity having that that ability to be able to go out and question not only what you're taught but also your own ability mm. um, to be able to rationalize it to seek out you know the people who are pushing those limits who are out doing that that sort of thing every single day to be able to question them um, because one of the things I get asked mostly to be honest with people I you know I talk to is aren't you afraid to contact those people who are out there doing it and ask a question and I'm kind of well known for just ringing people up you know and just hey it's Greg you know I've spoken to you online I just need to pick your brains mm. and you'd be surprised how many people are actually kind of open to that um, you know you get into some decent conversations and obviously the networking starts from there um but I'd like to know what you guys actually think with regards to effective training and how that can be put across in a way that is useful if somebody attends, you know, one of these three, five, seven day workshops. Because I know yours, Adam, is, you know, over a year. Um, which, which, to be quite honest, you know, in comparison to, to conventional medicine, for example, is, is, is a very short period of time absolutely. in and of itself as well. Yeah, so, you um, know. well, you know, for, for for me, I think um, prior to any training or prior to going and working out in the world is is the 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 instilling instilling of an attitude of critical thinking. So I suppose it's it's probably a bit more friendly to to refer to it as curiosity. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's probably you know it sounds a lot more agreeable to refer to it as curiosity. But I suppose that's that's very much what it is. Critical thinking is you know not a, it, it's about not just wanting to be spoon fed answers, but yeah. beginning to to question and examine them. So um, I think one of the ways in which um, which which we you know I suppose is is the frame of which any training is delivered because you know when you're learning about hypnotherapy for example i think 
um, the, the, the very tone and the framework of how it is initially presented, you know, is it being presented in terms of this is what you need to know or, or, or this is this is the right way, for example, um, or is it being you know is it being framed in a way whereby you know you're expected to to develop um, um an attitude of critical thinking yeah. so you know um i i ask people prior to as part of their pre-course preparation to read some articles i've written about the ethos the ethos of the college um which is you know to, to, to question what you're being taught and so on. And, and you know, a lot of the subjects that, that we teach, um, which which really are essential parts of curriculum, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with. Um, and so, for example, you know, I, I, I know Jürgen has a really, um, you know, a, a really fascinating insight with regards to regression and some of the the online stuff that he did with um james tripp recently was fascinating on that on that subject um and and you know regular people that follow my work or know my work know that i have a few issues with that particular type of approach for example yeah. and um so you know within our class you know it's not my job to say I don't use this, but I've got to teach it anyway, because yeah. heck, you know, that's going to flavour their experience of it now. Yeah. What we do is completely neutrally teach it um, um, objectively, talk about what the main proponents of this model say, um, let them understand it, experience <laughs> it for themselves and adopt their own leaning towards it yeah. before we then offer up some of the critique. And I think that people ought to be treated in you know that they ought to be trusted to be able to make decisions for themselves as to what they you know it's not my job to say you must do this you must not do that yes. instead it's my job to say you know here's the case for it here's the case against it you know experience it use it develop it and then make an informed decision of your own and i think yeah. that's that's what critical thinking is about yeah. i also there's there's uh, it's I also think having an attitude, having, an, having a very particular type of attitude, a similar attitude to that in therapy is also very, very useful. That yeah. is, you know, adopting a critical thinking attitude towards your clients. Yeah. And, you know, so, so, for example, there are some questions that I think a lot of hypnotherapists are very scared to ask with regards to their, their clients, for example. You know, following up, on your clients I think is vital you know knowing how they got on um, yep. um in four weeks time in six months time in a year's time you know is is uh, are you still doing well has you know has this been successful but even as much as at the end of a session I will say you know I, I'll measure I want to measure what we did okay at the beginning of today's session these were our aims you know on a scale of zero to ten how satisfied are you that we've met those aims OK, and so really, really examining and looking at what we did. And that could potentially leave me a bit vulnerable, you know, yes. especially if the client thinks that that I'm responsible. So one of the other things that I'm always inclined to do, especially at the end of a first session, is ask the client, you know, how did I do today? You know, is there anything you think I could be doing differently or better that would serve you better in this process? Um, now, 
that's scary, right? Because, you know, if, if you're precious, if you are yep. precious, or and, and that could make us feel a bit insecure, you know, we might have to take something on the chin. Yes. Um, um, but the beautiful thing about that is that you get to adapt and adopt and you get to build your rapport, you get to build your working alliance with that individual now yes. because you get to show them that you've taken that on board, you're adopting things, they are being heard and so on. So I think, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a certain attitude to the way in which we ask questions, not just of our training, but also of our clients and asking yeah. questions that are, that are quite piercing, but, but will ultimately lead to better results, both with regards to training and therapy. And I think, you know, an attitude of critical thinking, an attitude being comfortable enough in your own skin and feeling yep. assured... <laughs> Of your own curiosity, your own critical yeah. thinking, um, I think, and, and and if if that is all framed from the outset, then it becomes a lot easier to do, and and a lot easier to apply in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I I love, I absolutely love what you've just said there, um, with regards to asking clients about feedback. Um, because I had a conversation with somebody about two weeks ago, and they said, when you, when you work with somebody, whether, whether you mentor somebody, whether you work with a client, what's one of the things that you do for feedback? I says, well, I frame my feedback as right, any feedback that you have, good, bad, or indifferent, mm. let me know. I said, well, well, that's opening you up to any sort of feedback. I says, well, I don't want everybody just sat there saying, yes, you're brilliant. I can't evolve what I do. I can't refine what I do, you know, based on everybody just saying, yes, this is brilliant all the time. I said, you will get times when people tell me, I said, oh, I didn't like this. No, that, that really didn't gel with me or whatever it was. But any sort of feedback can be used constructively to help the client and also your processes. Um, but there is there is something to that where I think you're absolutely spot on with regards to the way that you teach, but also having the questioning mindset, that critical thinking regarding your client. Because I also see a lot of people where there's, you know, they'll come to me and they go, oh, I have a phobia, I have depression, I have X, Y, Z. And mm. it's what they've either read online or they've been told, oh, so-and-so had this, and oh, it seems like you've got it. And then yeah. once we start asking the questions, it turns out it's not that at all. It could be something completely different. But I've also had clients turn around to me, well, how dare you ask me that? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm asking because I want to know and you want to improve. So I'm asking it again. You know? And I get people saying, well, we, you antagonize us. I, says, I don't antagonize my clients. I says, but I will repeat a question two or three times if needs be, even if, you know, I know they're deflecting because there is something there that, you know, needs to be asked. So I think if you've, if you've got that and you're able to kind of get your students or your clients or anybody that you mentor or talk to to be able to think about something, you know, it just starts that ball rolling where it's almost as if a what if mm. kind of kicks in. But that, that, that attitude of critical thinking as well, I think, you know, comes in being aware of ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. you can't you can't be responsible 
if you're not aware of what you're supposed to be being responsible for. And that is, you know, being aware of your own processes. I mean, Jürgen mentioned earlier on um, um, confirmation bias. Um, You you know, people don't realise what they're editing. They're editing their own thoughts. They're editing the, you know, their own approach to their clients. They're editing their own approach to their training because they're blissfully unaware of their own bias. Yeah. Um, so and good critical thinking, good reflective practice upon what you are doing, self-awareness as an attitude um, yeah. um, ought to be, you know, increasing, increasing your awareness of what you do and thus the, the, the decisions and the choices that you make. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Jorgen. Yeah. I, what, you know, are, I, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I've, I've never run a training school or, or really taken people from being uh, – beginners to competent uh hypnotherapists so i'll I'll take my own advice with a big grain of salt uh what i what what i have done though is i've I've done a few you know speciality seminars you know hypnosis seminars in various countries and and done quite a bit of mentoring Mm. uh, for people who work professionally So, so i have some experience there and and one thing that i do my best to do both with students and with myself with what i think various degrees of success is is to really impart the idea that the feeling of knowing you know that the, the feeling of certainty really is that you know it's it's a feeling mm. it, it doesn't necessarily tell you anything about your actual competency or, or, or how something necessarily works. And this is, of course, Daniel Kahneman. You know, he, mm. he used to talk about confusing internal coherence with some, you know, actual understanding of something in the world where, where you know, if, if – and, and, and this is, I think, again, goes back to those quick certifications in that the less you know, the less you'll be inclined to think that there is anything to know. Yeah. Because because if you have four pieces in your jigsaw puzzle, uh, you'll relatively easily be able to put them together and thereby get the feeling of internal coherence. And if if, if people don't get that, that that feeling tells them that they've been able to put together their own very limited jigsaw puzzle in a way that makes sense, that, that, that it's, it's, it's not about, oh, I have this deep feeling of knowing or certainty – well, it, it tells me about my own set of puzzles, yeah. not my competency at doing something. So when I've done seminars and work with people, I, I usually do my best to, 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 to get them to equate that feeling of understanding and knowing if it's wrong with death. <laughs> or not, 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 not death literally, but, but, but death of the intellect, as, yeah. in, as in, okay, this is a warning signal that says that you're about to conclude. Yeah. So so it essentially means it essentially means that it's time to get curious again mm-hmm. and to begin to ask, okay, what am I missing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 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 that I think is a really really uh, important piece. Now to 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 play devil's advocate with myself and and also with you guys, you know, also yeah, in terms critical thinking. You know, I, I have a very skilled uh, friend uh, 
Brian Mahoney in Boston who runs Boston Hypnosis, you know, very professional, very skilled. We've been exchanging uh, ideas for about a decade. Now, he, he's a very sharp guy, but, but he, he, he had an interesting experience where, where first he would train with, you know, John Grinder and Stephen Gilligan and, and some of the Robert Diltz. Like he, he went to several of these big names and, and was essentially confused, you know, just felt that he had a lot of information, a lot of models, uh, and, and wasn't that effective. And then, and you'll probably hate to hear this, you know, then he went to Florida, you know, and, and, and spent a week with, with Jerry Kine. And that really turned things around for him. And, and he learned two things, you know, direct suggestion hypnosis mm. and so-called regression to cause in, in the old kind of Elman style. Now, anyone who knows a bit about, you know, modern psychology and, and, and memory and stuff like that will, will know that that training from a scientific standpoint is, is severely outdated. Yeah. But, but here's the thing. It gave him a sense of certainty and it gave him something simple to do and understand where he said, you know what? All these complex models and ideas, you know, this I can do. Yeah. This is easy. This I can do. I can go out there and I can apply. Yeah. And, and of course today his, his model and way of working is, is way, way evolved. But uh, that's a really interesting thing. And, and I also wonder, you know, like, for example, for me, I remember this is back in 2002. I saw my first uh, anorexia client. It was a woman who had been – she had very wealthy parents. So she had been for seven years at various clinics in Europe. And uh, 172 uh, meters and 39 kilograms. You know, she, she looked like a corpse, uh, essentially. And it had been fired from a waitress job in addition to her studies in Berlin because, because you know, the customers would, would respond to, you know, her elbows and arms and, and get freaked out. Mm. Now, at, at the time, I had uh, – I'd been seeing clients for four years at that time, but, but I'd never seen an anorexia client. Yeah. And we were able to succeed. And, and, and the stuff that I did was, I don't know if you can call it critical thinking as much as being curious, playful, having no respect for, you know, let's call it tradition or authority in, in a sense. And, and just being willing to follow my own intuition and, and just hunch of how do I respond to this person and, and, and I think especially in my early days um, in some ways you know that madness or outrageousness uh, that I feared that if we get too critical and, and perhaps too scientific that we may no longer have that well access to those hunches those in time hunches that may tell us to do something that sounds completely wild yeah. but we may but we may uh, you know famously the story about this uh, i think it was an english doctor i think his name was mason if my memory is correct who who got this 16 year old boy in with, with with this severe skin condition this this genetically based uh, fish skin uh, condition which which he thought was warts 
like an extreme case of warts and treated it as if it was and had this impossible results and uh, and which he then later said that you know had he known that this was you know something impossible to work with you know with his scientific mind he wouldn't even have done it and, and wouldn't even even so so my and this is more of a question or reflection there but but you know it's 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 how, how do we balance those things you know mm. to, to make sure that that people do have the critical thinking and at the same time you open the door for that innovation i suspect if you look at you know, folks like Mesmer and, and uh, you know, historical figures in the world of hypnosis who were able to do some pretty cool stuff, even if their theories were, you know, uh, nuts yeah. <laughs> in a sense. But but that conviction, the passion, the the. So. So, yeah, that's. Yeah, there's, um, the, 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 there's a couple of points there that, that really really rang with me and um, um one of them one of them you know i mean i know we've mentioned anthony a couple of times already one of the things i remember anthony saying um in in an interview i did with him um was you know that that there was a lot of mileage to be had uh, you know on occasions at being being really good at one thing learning how to do that one thing doing it really well and so on um and you know certainly there's a, there's a number of number of colleges and schools and training establishments around the world that teach a singular approach okay and um they teach a singular approach and and what i think that does offer is it does offer some security um you know i know lots of my students end up feeling quite vulnerable at the you know after that there are a few modules in a few months in and they've not been spoon-fed with exactly what to do and 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 instead you know this notion of critical thinking that i've been um, espousing suddenly is making them think like well oh my god i've got to you know i've got to think i've got to work this work this out for myself and that can feel quite that can feel quite insecure at first um um, you know and, and so sometimes when they then start being given then some some sort of you know protocols or some sort of guidance with regards to how to start, you know, fashioning a treatment plan, for example, that, that, that they sometimes start feeling a bit more secure. Now, the other point I just wanted to to, to, to mention there, you know, I think, Jürgen, you make a really good point with regards to, to intuition. And, you know, I think the key thing that you said when you started introducing the notion of intuition and, 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 and you know, and, and hunching, for example, is balance, that there must be balance. Because, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, there are people... The you know especially in the field of hypnosis where you're being taught to very often training schools for example are are being told to to treat treat the treat an, an unconscious mind like it is a benevolent demigod that must be trusted um, yes. um or you know a sort of slightly watered down version of that might be that your intuition your instincts are always correct yeah. well let's be honest intuition and instincts can sometimes be wrong. Um, you know, the example that I've, I, I, I often give is when, you know, people have um, uh, people have stopped smoking, for example, they've stopped smoking or they've, they've overcome some particular habit, but they find themselves having some kind of a craving and their gut feelings or their intuition is to go buy more cigarettes. Yes. Whereas, you know, so the, the intuition, 
I, I think the key with regards to intuition and critical thinking is, is about balance, is about understanding and, you know, not necessarily teaching your intuition like it is benevolent, like it is absolutely all wise, but actually, you know, learning enough about yourself to know when, when it's, when it's right and when it's going to be useful and, you know, for me, intuition is something that enables me to be creative. And it's not necessarily something that I always trust, but it, it enables me to bend a little bit from time to time and enables me to start thinking about creative solutions if if I'm in need of them. Um, and, you know, I, I, I also think that the critical thinking is actually a very creative process as well at times. It helps us you know, broaden our horizons at times and can sometimes be creative. And I suppose there's um, there's there's a very similar discussion and debate that, that, that rambles on very often about this kind of science versus art in hypnosis. But I think, um, you know, balance is, is a really important point. Balancing intuition and, you know, trusting yourself enough to be creative and follow hunches if you, you know, when they arise. But at the same time, having a good attitude that, that enables critical thinking and not just accepting things at face value all of the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's great because, you know, with regards to critical thinking, intuition, gut feeling, you know, whatever we use... Um, I personally am one for just sat there, you know, I, I don't prepare for a client. I don't sit there and say, oh, I wonder if it's this, it could be that, it could be, you know, anytime I see anybody, it's literally just a case of what are you here for? And, you know, I get a brief explanation and that's when I start questioning. But the first um, PTSD client that I had, I went in for the first session. I thought, okay, you know, I've gone through it. You know, I've, I've, I've broken everything down. We'll, we'll see. Right, I'll just talk to you as a person. My inductions didn't work. My pre-talk had absolutely no, you know, efficacy whatsoever. You know, she was sat there looking around, rolling her eyes. She told me she'd seen two other hypnotherapists. She'd seen four psychotherapists. And, you know, she'd be on a medication for God knows how many years. And I walked out of that first session, you know, I mean, I still got her in for a second one, but I walked out of that session thinking, Christ, I've got nothing here that I can use, not a thing. And I was speaking to the late Jeffrey Stevens about it. And I remember him just turning around to me and saying, just do your freaking job. It's like, you are a teacher. She was not listening. Go in, take control and do the work. Well, it can't be that simple, you know, and I walked into the second session and she was sat and she was walking around, she was talking over me. And I remember just saying to her, look, you're here to get a result. I can't help you get a result if you are not willing to work through this with me. So sit your backside down. If you don't want to, there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. And she just clammed up. She sat down, got a partial induction going. And she just sprung her eyes open. She went, um, no, 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 it, it won't let me. So it won't let you. Okay. Thinking just off the top of my head. Well, okay, just close your eyes and ask it if it's the right time for you to do this now to be able to go into hypnosis. And lo and behold, she, you know, 
she metaphorically dropped like a rock and we, we got some work done. And it happened in her final session as well. She says, I know what I need to do. I need to have a word with that, that part again to allow me to complete this. And it took about three sessions, bearing in mind the first one got absolutely nowhere. And she says it was the weirdest thing. And all I took away from that was it doesn't matter how many tools I have in a toolbox. I can have a thousand and one techniques and I can have a thousand and one different ways of saying something. But if I am not working with the client and being able to think on my feet to analyze what's being said with that curiosity, I might have got nowhere. I, I wouldn't have had a clue. You know, so I think being able to think critically is great, but also just having that, what if, what if it is this, you know, I think also kind of goes a long way. If you are willing to try it, it might not always be right, but it is worth just sitting there and questioning yourself and the clients for that feedback to maybe just get that one little nugget of gold that you can use, you know, to break whatever it is wide open. But Mm. You know, that's 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 kind of about my uh, yeah, my it, finishing thoughts on that. It's, it's it's really interesting that that you mentioned Jeffrey Stevens there, who, who I I had some yeah. exchanges with online, and I, I I had a conversation with him once. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and he did not strike me as a critical thinker. Uh, he was very direct, very just go in, do this. That's the end of it. Yeah, Tell them what to do. Bring them out. The, and, and very dogmatic and and, and pretty magical uh, in in his thinking. Yeah. But 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 at the same time too, I I, I think you know wisdom uh, in doing the work versus being a technician. Yeah. Is 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 also about recognizing that you know sometimes for some people that may be the the way to go. I'll I'll give you a fun example of this. I, I know a woman who. Who went to a, I think it was a two day NLP course and learned some techniques and, you know, thought it was interesting. <clears throat> and, and, and then she contacted the, the instructor who, who, by all appearances, is, you know, a, a, a nice guy and a, and a skilled guy uh, for some help with, with an issue. And what, what, and he, he lost her in one minute, you know. But by doing something that seems completely reasonable and that I think many people would have liked in that he said, well, you, you've been on a seminar, you know, h- how do you think we should solve this? You know, and, and, and he, he essentially went into a very kind of democratic, you know, what do you think? What makes sense to you? And, and, and kind of a- a- attempted to have her as a co-creator of, of the experience. Which for a lot of people would have been an excellent fit, but but she lost all confidence in him, you know, by by thinking, you know, well, he's supposed to be the expert, you know. He started asking me how I thought we should work with this, you know. And at that moment, I, I realized he didn't know what he was doing, <laughs> which, 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 which was her, which were her conclusion, and 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 he completely lost her, <laughs> and that's you, you know. <laughs> It's, it's kind of funny, but 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 that is that is a scenario where I think a, a Jeffrey Stevens type, who, who has a pretty black and white, simple, direct, you know, just do this, yeah. or or a person who is able to at least act that that way, who, who who's able to see, okay, you know, that kind of democratic uh, 
collaborative approach doesn't work. This person's looking for an authority figure. Now, your your goal might be to to, to help the person think more independently, but a road to getting there might be to adopt the role of the authority figure who then tells the person it's time for you to think for yourself. You know, yeah. paradoxically. Yeah. So, yeah. so being being able to 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 meet someone there and uh, is and I also wonder, you know, sometimes it seems as if some of the fundamentalists, you know, the the, the people who have one answer, one solution that they just impose on people. Can be very effective, you know, due to their their congruence, even if they're not critical yeah. thinkers at all. You know, it's, it's like my my experience to, to 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 some to some extent is, you know, sometimes if you get a client, let's say for some sort of pain issue, and 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 they have this idea that, well, you know, perhaps there's some psychological factors here, and perhaps it's this, and perhaps it's these toxins, and Perhaps it's these environmental factors and maybe this and maybe that. You know, the person who who buys into a belief system and goes, oh, it's generated by my mind, for example, who, who, who has a therapist who goes, it's this, you know, and, and is able to, to kind of impose that in a way, yeah. I think usually has better odds, even if, the, the other therapist might be way more reasonable in saying maybe this, maybe that, who knows? There might be all these factors contributing. But that may also evoke just indecisiveness and confusion in, in a client. And I think that's where that wisdom comes in, you know, in addition to to, to knowing techniques and, and formats. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that um, when, when, when a therapist has and beholds you know a, a really strong level of belief in what they are doing that is you know that is perceived by the client and the client become you know they, they become more believable in they become perceived as being more credible as a result so i can see how how that can work absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. brilliant yeah good 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 discussion um um anyone want to add anything further on that uh, I think I've pretty much covered it from from my angle. Yeah, same, same here. Great, great, great. In that case, we will be back in just a moment. I'm back once again with Jürgen Rasmussen and Craig Galvin. And uh, last but certainly not least, I'm uh, handing the lead over to Jürgen. Jürgen, your question? Yes. So my curiosity, since I'd like to learn from you guys and then, of course, uh, share some learnings myself, is what has been your main insights in the last few years? Uh, even insights, you know, either insights as in learning to do something, uh, you know, seeing something about the, the, the work that has really made a difference, or even eliminating something, you know, taking something out that kind of got in the way and which made the work um, a lot more effective. And I may go first and, and just share a couple of things that I've mm. discovered in recent years that's been exciting to me. 
The the first thing, and and I don't really believe in inductions per se, but I'll I'll use the term induction, and it's it's almost embarrassing that it took me so long to discover this. But I've essentially ended up most of the time doing what you could call hypnosis without hypnosis, and as a result, I'm getting more hypnotic responses. Uh, I think I'm being more hypnotic with clients, and I think I'm getting more quality of hypnotic phenomena and people uh, realizing post-hypnotic suggestions. And the the way I do this is, you know, what struck me one day is that I think being a good hypnotic subject is at least to some extent, about how you listen. Mm. And, and I realized that if, if I could get people to really listen, so what I'll usually do with clients is that I'll, I'll, I'll say to them, you know, it's essentially a two-part thing, where I'll say to them, look, you know, a lot of the time when people come in here, that they have this idea that they're supposed to tell their story and that, I'm, and that I'm supposed to passively listen to their story and attempt to understand it. Um, I don't work that way. It's not proven effective. So if people start telling stories, I have a tendency to stop them. Not because I lack compassion, but just because it's way more effective that way if we do it that way. Is that okay? And as soon as they say yes, uh I've dramatically reduced the tendency for them when I speak to them and engage them to be in their head thinking about what story they're supposed to tell next. And, and then, I'll, then I'll instruct them and essentially say, I, I just have a simple invitation for you. I'm going to guide you through some experiences. I'll be telling some stories, sharing some ideas. And I'd like to invite you to listen in the same way that you listen when you listen to good music. Just kind of listen to have an experience to, to find a certain rhythm. And then I move into the session. Mm. It's like that's, that's my induction, if, if you will. And what I've noticed is everybody can relate to listen the way you listen when you listen to good music. Yeah. And there's no performance anxiety. I mean, the, the chances of someone, you know, being inside their head thinking, oh, my God, you know, is it happening now? Am I really listening the way I'm lis listening when I listen to good music? You know, the, the chances of that happening, I think, are really, really slim. And since people aren't in their head thinking about what story to tell or to kind of argue and, and debate with me, and they're kind of listening the way they listen when they listen to good music. They have a tendency to automatically engage with their imagination and, and have the experience that things are just spontaneously happening internally. So paradoxically, since starting doing that, my sessions have become way, way, way more hypnotic. Uh, mm. Another, I'll, I'll share it. Just two more quick insights. And can, can I just ask you something about yeah. that? Would you mind? Sure, sure. Um, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I love that. Do you? Do, I'm really interested to know. Do you? Do you call it and refer to it as hypnosis? Usually not. Mm, mm. Usually that, that, not. I, I'm finding it interesting because 
um, um, the, the, you know, I, I know, for example, that when the term the term hypnosis is sometimes used, even when hypnosis is not formally done, it can have a hypnotic effect. So I was interested to know what, what either the kind of framework that was yeah. that that was around I, it, and, and what kind of expectations were, were were inherent within what you were doing. I, I love this idea of saying you know, listen as if you were listening to good music. I really love that. And I, I'm, I'm interested, again, in... in... Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm glad you asked. And, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm not going to claim to fully understand hypnosis or, or, or say that the way people listen is, is the entire thing. But I, but I think it's part of the package. And I think that that's what a, you know, good hypnotic subject is essentially doing. They're mm. listening to have an experience. And, and this listening as if you're listening to music, uh, idea is, is something that seems to, uh, again, create no performance anxiety. And it's, and it's, it's, mm. it's, 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 it's not associated with, with performing, you know, having to succeed at something. It's just pleasurable and, and, and just something you, you kind of allow to happen. And I'm happy to tell you that I, I, uh, discovered the opposite of my own belief Be because my belief when I started doing it was that it might be less hypnotic because I had the idea that, well, you know, I got to throw in the word hypnosis, you know, to kind of mm. get hypnotic responses. And to my delight and surprise, I found the opposite to be true. Mm. And, and, and I got so many, you know, reports of people, you know, just acting out post hypnotic suggestions having resources and, and, and insights spontaneously fall into place when they go, go out into the real, you know, real life, uh, context. And, and, you know, my, my cue when doing this too is, is, uh, you know, it, it's been many years since I did any sort of, and here's the funny part too. When doing this, of course, I, I don't have a tendency to use words like hypnosis or the unconscious and the conscious or any of that type of terminology. And the irony is that getting hypnotic responses or what we're attempting to do with hypnosis in general has become so much easier. Mm. That's been, uh, that, that's been a, a great biggie for me. And, and essentially when, whenever I see them really focus in and, and, and whenever I see that I, I hook them in some way, you know, that they, they have an insight or they access a state or they kind of perk up. That's when I kind of give my post hypnotic suggestions without calling them that. But I, but I just give them plenty of post hypnotic suggestions, you know, linking whatever their experiences and realizing to various, various cues. And as soon as I kind of see that I'm losing their interest, you know, I, I move on. Uh, and, and, and I think that really helps too because there's no, uh, they don't really have the, the the notion, I think, that hypnosis per se is is taking place. Mm. Responses are very very hypnotic. A another thing that that might delight you too, uh, in terms of the regression stuff, uh, something that I would not have suspected was possible uh, just a few years ago was. What I've started doing, and I've done this with people who have had, you know, deep traumatic experiences, who struggle with PTSD symptoms, is instead of working directly with their memories, you know, attempting to, to, to evoke their memories and, and update them, mm. I have essentially 
first evoked, you know, their symptoms and, and what they're there to change. Uh, and then I just had this conversation with them about the nature of thought and experience and the reconstructive nature of memory. Like I, I'll, I'll, and, and I just tell a lot of different stories and often kind of, you know, stop the story when I see that, that I've hooked them to some extent or, or they're, mm. they're beginning to realize something to avoid premature closure. Mm. And, and all the stories essentially point towards two ideas. And one, one idea is that it's what you may have experienced back in the day and what you're experiencing right now when you think about it is not really the same thing or same experience. But it's, it's just saying that and pointing that out in many, many different ways by telling stories, pointing to memory research, mm. so on and so forth. And, and the second idea is that if you here and now begin to feel traumatized and, and have, you know, painful feelings come up, it's not due to X having happened. It's due to you right now thinking about it and forgetting that it's a thought. And the feeling in your body is kind of a warning signal saying, you know, dude, you, you, you know, warning, warning, you're, you're, you're thinking some low quality thinking and you, you've forgotten that it's thinking. Mm, I love might, that. Might, might use the, the, the analogy of like rails on the highway. You know, if, if, if you kind of drive a bit poorly and forget that you're driving, you have these rails that sat this sound to kind of wake you up to say, Hey, dude, remember that you're driving. And you kind of course correct. So, so I might do a, a long session with just plenty of these stories where all of them point to those two ideas. And then after the session, I, I essentially dismiss them, you, you know. Uh, and to my surprise, this has been as effective as the way I've done regular regression work. Me, 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 meaning that people, people get the idea that wait a minute this is not what i thought it was and and i can change this internally i've had so many reports of people saying the flashbacks are gone or very reduced you know the nightmares aren't there anymore i'm no longer responding with being numb or or, or responding phobically phobically in these situations and we haven't we haven't even directly accessed or worked with the memories so that that has been been uh, and and the third thing before I throw it over to you guys for me is when when I work with clients these days uh, my main idea or frame is that what people call symptoms or mental illnesses or whatever is essentially just them falling for some simple psychological illusions and misunderstandings. And I, I, I view what I do essentially just as a conversational process where I do my best, you know, via demos, stories, hypnotic phenomena to essentially just see through psychological illusions. Mm. And that has also been a, a extremely useful framework, uh, for me. So, so those are like three of my, 
could call the discoveries in the last few years that have really made a difference for me and, and my clients. So I love hearing about the um, the you, you know I, I suppose you know I, regression regression's not not really my thing you know um, um, uh, but uh, you know if if ever you know I love the fact that you're not you're not suggesting that that w with your use you know you're not suggesting that it is you know a, a literal reliving of the experience that actually you're explaining the reconstructed nature um of the memory whilst yep. whilst revisiting it and and framing it in in those terms i really enjoyed i really enjoyed hearing that yeah and and, and what i think is happening too and, and and this is so and especially if the client is kind of resistant you know uh, if you sense that, that th this is a client I, I perhaps couldn't help that directly, it seems to be a, a high guard up, if you will. What, what, what I suspect is happening here is by, by evoking the symptoms a little bit, you know, talking about what they experience and want to change initially in the session, you know, that kind of sets the direction. It, it, it sets the idea that, that the contract between me and the other person is that we're here to help them create a different experience around those things. That's why they're here, you know. So so when they then begin to listen the way they listen when they listen to good music, and I tell them all these stories uh, that all point to these two ideas – but 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 it's kind of in an in, in a you know experiential way. It's it's not just a cognitive theoretical discussion, but it's 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 a conversation where they're you know we're doing various demos. We might do some hypnotic phenomena. We we uh, you know they're listening as if they're listening to good music in this very receptive state. Mm. And and I'm not even directly suggesting that their symptoms go away. <clears throat> or, or, or saying that, you know, this memory will no longer bother you. It's all implied. Mm. It's it's all implied by the conversation, by telling all these stories of memories changing and updating themselves and people having insights so on and so forth. And, and, of course, since they're there to have a different experience, my sense is that they're unconsciously relating all this to their own experience and, and making changes from the inside and, since I'm not directly imposing that they change or saying this will specifically be different, there, there's way less resistance, performance anxiety, or, or fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really interesting. Really interesting. I know one of the um, one of the the strongest proponents of um, of regression in the world today um, said to me once when, when I was, you know, forwarding my own critique of regression to him um, that he said, you know, it, it's not about the, the, the necessarily the actual memory, but more the more the perception that the client thinks the memory is the issue. Um, and, you know, I, I, I found that quite interesting. Um, yeah. Craig, do you want to go next or shall I? Um, you go next, Adam. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in towards sure. the end. We'll turn around a bit. Sure. So um, for me, I suppose that the, the, the big insights within that, that I've really gained that, that I think have made made things certainly given me a better relationship with with hypnotherapy and with the work that I do with clients. I think, first of all, was the, the admission 
um, of my own or the, the leaning towards a non-state perspective rather than a state perspective. Now then, um, I don't want to say that I that I absolutely have a finite understanding and knowledge of state, non-state, because, you know, the more neuroscience I read, the more people can easily drag me in to thinking that, you know, there's the that the, the hypnosis has potentially got elements of being a state and so on. But I think in terms of how I conceptualise it to my clients, I, for me, it was like a huge weight lifted off my shoulders when I had to stop, stop expecting them or wanting them to have this trance-like experience where, um, where they were going to be deeply zonked out out of it you know and 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 actually say you know and know openly wow this is a big you know a big impressive zonked out trip to 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 the clouds that I've just had you know and and please excuse me dribbling down myself for the last 10 minutes you know um, um it was so nice for me it was to for people you know, so, for example, when I was really into the state model, one of the difficulties I would sometimes have with, with teaching or doing group hypnosis sessions was that people would compare their experience. And one person would say, wow, I was totally out of it, man. And someone else would say, oh, well, you know, my experience wasn't the same. And they would make this cause and effect, or they would make this causal relationship between the two and say, you know, because I wasn't zonked out like he was therefore hypnosis is not effective for me and they'd end up you know having having a, a different opinions about it and so on so when I started to to consider and examine and certainly you know my own PhD studies is really leaning towards hypnosis as as a skill and you know to be able to to frame it that way and tell my clients you know it's a skill that just requires you to adopt, you know, a positive cognitive mindset, you know, adopt a number of attitudes um, and, and just explaining those attitudes to them, you know, expectancy and, and adopting the role um, and, and a number of different things really was just just became wonderful because, you know, it's really interesting that that you mentioned this idea of performance anxiety in a therapy session, Jürgen, because um you know, I think that that when people are coming wondering what hypnosis is going to be be about, if they're going to have this sort of tangible, tranced out state that they're going to be experiencing, um, you know, there can be a certain certain level of performance anxiety about that. Yet when when I make it very sober, and when I talk to them about it being, you know. A skill something they're going to develop they're going to practice every time I you know because I punctuate my session I socialize my clients to the model by doing lots of hypnotic phenomena by doing lots of induction type re re-induction type processes throughout my m m throughout my assessment session with them and I, I then hand those skills over to them and ask them to go and practice it and become better and build self-efficacy and things like that and so for me I think you know, moving from the notion of hypnosis being some altered state, some some big, deep trance thing, um, um, 
into something a bit more tangible, such as a skill, that became incredibly liberating for me. And I think I, I do my best work. As it happens, you know, many people interpret that and many people have have all kinds of different experiences and respond to it in ways and then they even end up explaining it as, as, as an altered state of some kind. Um, but so, so I think that's, that's one of the first things, one of the first things that really I think was, was a major insight, a major development and, and, and a turning point for my own work. Um, I won't go into massive detail about it, but I think abandoning the notion of an unconscious mind is was, was again had a very similar effect upon me very very liberating you know th- this non-tangible non-scientific and largely unproven notion of there being an unconscious mind um you know people still today want to convince me that it's a useful metaphor to use um, and and you know I, I don't find it so i find it much easier um to to not really need to try and get the client to understand what is meant by by mind um and in fact you know talk to them about a number of other things and um and that really you know there's there's no such thing as a as, as this sort of separate entity this benevolent force of the unconscious mind you know certainly that we do stuff unconsciously but there isn't such a thing um, a nominalized thing that exists as an unconscious mind so i i think they just took away that you know th- those those kind of concepts took away a lot of the woo um from from the way in which i was experiencing teaching and doing hypnosis with people made it very sober and practical and one of the things i love and i started to notice was that you know i was getting better results um and what was happening is that I, I, rather than overselling and potentially under delivering i was underselling and making everything very sober talking about things being very ordinary psychological processes and doing everything i could to avoid any reference to magical thinking you know and um yet the results that i started to get were being described as being more magical in magical context so to speak so even though the framing of it was a lot more ordinary and sober the the results that people were getting is where the magic was being discovered and where i was finding it and 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 that became incredibly satisfying for me and i think this all led me as well to something which is central to my work which i'm going to sound like a broken record now and that's the my beloved notion of self-efficacy um you know the the work of bandura in the 70s 80s 90s is has really really made a staying impression upon me you know for for, for anybody listening that, that, that are not aware of what i mean by self-efficacy it's this really basic really fundamental idea that when you believe you are capable of doing something or when you are confident in your capability to do something you actually do it better or you do it differently. So, so you, you actualize those things better. And so with sport, you know, when someone believes in themselves a lot more, they become better at it. They, they get better results. Likewise in therapy and especially with hypnotherapy. When the client, when someone believes that they're capable of doing it, 
they become better at doing it when they start to believe in what they're doing and so for me you know the fact that we had we, you know we weren't we weren't attributing the change to an unconscious mind or to something external or beyond or non-tangible and and because we weren't having to to enter um, um, a, an altered state of, you know, a massively altered state of, you know, or a special unique state of trance, for example, it really opened the doors to establish self-efficacy, you know, by, by teaching the client skills, letting them become better at it and letting them start to realize I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm quite good at this. I've made some progress, you know, yay me. And and it was far less about what the therapist was doing. And it was really, and, you know, it's probably a bit of a gratuitous word, but, you know, empowering. It became it became empowering. So I think self-efficacy is, is something that all the time, all of my therapeutic work is, is always at some level or in some form attempting to boost self-efficacy. And I think that is probably the biggest and most profound insight of my work in in the in the more recent years cool perhaps perhaps uh, nasim taleb the the uh, economist uh, slash philosopher mm. uh, has has a point where he he, well, he he says a lot of weird stuff <laughs> but but he he said something along the lines of you know a, a true professional will tell you what not to do yeah. And uh, there might be something to that in, yeah. in terms of that analogy of, you know, uh, the, the, the statue, you know, where you just you just cut out all the stuff that's not supposed to be there and, and you end up with, with the statue inside. And, and I, I more and more get that impression, you know, with the hypnosis work and a lot of the stuff that, that we do, that it's 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 just as much, if not more, about just chopping away of all the concepts and ideas and notions that that don't really need to be there mm. and, and 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 you end up with, with with something pretty minimalistic and and very very practical you you, you get down to some some first principles yeah that you can orient uh, orient around and, and you know i realize that, that that's that's sometimes not very sexy um, you know, and people want something to be to to be magical. And with hypnosis as well, you know, a lot of people, you know, they want hypnosis to be magical and they want the allure and the, the intrigue of it because that's it's very much associated with that. And, you know, a lot of people feel quite deflated when I start talking to them about hypnosis being this this very ordinary set of psychological processes Um and and that perhaps it might not be quite as you know that that, that actually I, I'm not going to be wearing my red cape to the sessions and, and my pointy hat, and you know a lot of people d don't like that. But I think there is still magic in in what is ordinary and sober and grounded, and that you know and 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 that becomes a beautiful thing as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Yeah. So Craig. Yeah question is what indeed to add if anything um no I, I i really like both of those kind of aspects from yourself jorgen and, and you adam um for me holy moly um 
I think for me, one of one of the biggest keys over the last, I'd say, two or three years, is I find out I found out literally completely by accident that I didn't need to do an induction of of any sort. There was no ritual needed. Um, and that happened just basically in a conversation with somebody. They happened to say something along the lines to me um, about being stuck in, into a certain mindset that they, they just couldn't escape from. And all I managed to say to them at the time was, well, what kind of stuck? How, how do you feel stuck in place at the moment? And they literally just tried to shift their posture. Um, from from the, and they were literally just stuck to the seat. I mean, it, it was literally that quick. And to me, it was ju- it was just a, you know, a bog standard conversation where I, I was just trying to work out where they were stuck, how they were stuck, what was happening. And I remember the look on their face. They said, "What what did you do to me? What what did you say? What's happened?" And I remember asking them, "What." went through your mind when I said that I said well it was just like I was rooted to the spot I couldn't shift that's how I feel "Mm, okay well try again try and move no nothing happened but there there was no there was no induction there was no re-induction there was no talk of hypnosis nothing and to me that was really surprising because before this I was you know I'd obviously been through Anthony's stuff and loads of and you had the the set pieces, and you had the you know the pre talks, and the, you know, everything else, just to get to that point. And this took literally less than less than ten seconds. And that's when I started to wonder: Well, do we need the whole ritual? And then started to break it down, and realizing for the people that I was speaking to in sessions, it wasn't necessarily the power or the perceived power that I had, although, as discussed earlier, you know, the expectations and the belief and everything else can go a long way to helping with the result. But it was more how they were thinking, how they accessed their world, their problem, their perception of what their issue was, and whether or not I could congruently tap into that to be able to find out what they were doing and how and potentially lead them in a different direction and I used to use you know regression a fair bit when I when I first started because although and I've I've, I've still got to pick up you know Jorgen's set because it's, it's been recommended to me numerous times now I just haven't had the time um, on on regression you know I still look at it as everything has you know a start place a beginning um, and for me to be able to tap into not necessarily where it began, but how they do that process and then show them, like you've said, Adam, that it is a natural psychological process that we go through every day. Everything that we think, everything that we experience, you know, continually changes for for good, for bad, indifferent. It just happens. Once that's explained to the client, I also get, you know, at times that, oh, well, you're not going to fix me then. You're not going to take it away. So, well, 
no, we are going to work through this. We are going to help you, you know, be able to find that different route to be able to think differently, essentially more efficiently than, than what you're doing now. So I think the biggest key for me was realizing it's not, I don't, I don't, like Jorgen says, I don't need all the inductions. I don't need the big rituals. Um, Although, don't get me wrong, I do enjoy doing them because they are bloody fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and obviously, yeah. you know, we're, we're hypnotists at the end of the day, right. you know. And if a client comes in expecting some sort of induction or that set ritual, I'll quite happily oblige. You know, we'll have some fun and, you know, we'll, we'll do some phenomena just to, to prove to them that something is going on. But I won't necessarily deflate that bubble for them and say, well, yeah, but that's just a normal process that we're tapping into. You know, I will use that kind of air of mysticism just to help kind of speed the process along. Um, Showing them how and why their memory of things work the way they do and how easily, you know, that that can be kind of updated um, and changed. is quite phenomenal for for some of them for for instance you know the false memory which we all know about if if you're doing regression a certain way is always a possibility um but then again using their perception of what they think happened and being able to roll with that it doesn't matter to me whether it is real whether it isn't real whether they've just picked it out and just made it up if it's what they're latching onto that is what i will use and i think being being congruent with the clients you know in their way of thinking but not necessarily taking it completely on board yourself being able to question it to redirect it um to guide and to also ask the client well what if what would you you know, want from this, ideally, how would you be, you know, how would you look at, you know, guiding me if I was the one sat here saying, well, I want to do X, you know, and it just opens up for them a kind of a a different way of thinking that they're not locked into, because when they walk in that this is my issue, this is what's happening, this is what always happens, I want it gone. But to be able to work in a way where you can teach them, you can educate them. You don't have to talk at them. You don't have to run a set process. You know, I think that to me is a massive key for the way I work. It's literally a case of working with them, not talking at them. And especially with the, I, I get thrown the, the unconscious mind, um, you know, terms and, God knows whatever else thrown at me 24-7. It has all the answers. It knows what you need to do. All you need to do is do an induction and tell the subconscious mind you know, to do whatever it needs to do for the client to be free of X, Y, Z. No, I, I, I'm sorry, I haven't found that. Now, what I have found is that if a client believes in that, I can use it. I would not sit there and I don't sit there and say to a client, do whatever it is that you need to do to be able to get rid of 
your phobia, your drinking habit, your PTSD, you know, your your weight loss, you know, because quite frankly, I I don't see that that is going to work, you know, long term, you know, at all. I mean, it it might be you know, band aid therapy at best, you know, and I, I know that's probably going to tick a hell of a lot of people off who actually use that model, but quite frankly, it doesn't work for me, and it's it's not what I found. You know, if you can prove it to be any different, by all means, get in contact and let me know. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for looking at it. But I think stripping out the rituals, stripping out the, you know, the necessary inductions, the depth of hypnosis, you know, you need to be at, you know, X depth to be able to do anesthesia, analgesia, uh, amnesia. I, I haven't found that either. I can quite happily get the same result, you know, with anybody out of hypnosis or a state as long as I get them thinking congruently about where they wish to head and the process that it involves. As long as I have them engaged, willing to follow, you know, and go through the process that we've laid out, there's no reason why they can't get a result. And on top of that, the self-efficacy that, that you mentioned, Adam, I think is great because once you teach somebody this, even if you know they, they have gained a result, be it, for instance, for pain control, and they've managed to do it for a minute, and then all of a sudden you know, the sensation comes back, they know they can build on that minute because they've done it. It just takes the practice to be able to build up. But for me, literally, it, it is working on the way that people think, the way that they experience and perceive the world around them and being congruent in your language as to how that is conveyed to the client. But also, I've had numerous times when what I've said to the client hasn't matched, be it I've used certain words and it was it had a different meaning to them than it did for me. So also being extremely congruent in what you say and making sure that they understand what you say to be able to move you know forward and achieve the result that they want but not sticking to any ritualized process um you know i'll use it if it's there if i feel the need for it but ultimately for me it's all about working with the person in front of you what's given to you what's said and ultimately how you can lead them you know in their way of thinking to a different result by essentially, you know, just connecting with them, you know, and I, I know that's going to sound corny and cheesy to a hell of a lot of people out there, you know, but at the end of the day, some people will come to you who will expect to be hypnotized, you know, put into God knows how many different states and told they can do X, Y, Z. Others will come in not knowing what to expect, what's going to happen, probably never even heard about hypnosis before. And to spend, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes trying to explain something that, and no disrespect meant to anybody in our field, but none of us can bloody agree on. You know, we all, <laughs> you know if, if, if we can't explain it congruently to one another, you know, and have a 100% congruence rate where we all sit there and go, yeah, that, that, that's the definition I'm going to use. You know, how, how do we do it with a client? For me, all I do is let them know that, you know, they have X problem. 
they have learnt to do X problem a certain way, and we're just going to help them update that thinking to be able to change the behaviour associated with it. And it's rare that I ever get anybody turn around to me and say, well, can you explain hypnosis to me? Can you explain to me how this is going to work step by step? Mm. Once I get them engaged, once I get them, you know, talking to me fluently, you know, without all the fear and misconceptions, you know, I will quite happily sit down with anybody and say, look, all we're doing is we're taking your imagination, your memory, we are guiding it with your help to a new place so that your response to that old problem is gone. You literally end up with a different way to behave and think, respond and react. And the only reaction I usually get to that is, cool, mm -hmm. let's do something. You know, I don't care. I'll, I'll, I'll explain hypnosis. I'll do inductions. I'll do deepeners. I'll, you know, I've trained to do all that. I've done it for years. You know, I, I still do if I go out and I'm playing around with hypnosis. But one of the biggest things I use as well is James Tripp's um, idiodynamic lever. Mm. I think that is fantastic. I absolutely love that process. And I love James Tripp's work as well because that for me was a highlight of I really can drop 95% of all that I'm using and just as long as I get the buy-in from the person and be able to guide their imagination congruently, we can get a result. And then to find out that worked in therapy as well as you know sticking somebody's hand to a pint glass or a table or their backside to a chair – you know, that, that was a, a massive eye-opener. So to be able to do the idiodynamic lever where somebody says, oh, I've got a little niggle, it's a bit of a problem, you know, I can't let go of it. Great, put your arm out like this, hold on to this card, <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden get them to associate their problem into the card and only let it go, you know, when they're, that's great, you know, and it works time and time again so effortlessly. But why spend... 45 minutes, an hour, 90 minutes, you know, when potentially you can get that done. And I'm not saying that, you know, everybody should take 10 minutes to work with a client. Obviously, it's client dependent and you work with them as much time as you need to to help them resolve the issue, you know, because I'll more than likely get some, some someone kicking me for that as well, <laughs> you know. But if it works in 10 minutes, then I have the next you know, hour and 20 minutes, if I do an hour and a half session, trying to break my own work, trying to break their own perceptions of what's happened. Because if I can't do it with the work that I've done with them and they can't do it, they're going to be better placed to be able to run with that when they leave the therapy. You know, and I get a lot of people asking me, well, do you really try and break the work that you do with clients? Yes, I do all the time. If a client comes to me with a phobia, I try and get back the phobia. If they come to me with anxiety, I try to make them anxious, you know, because there's no point me doing Band-Aid therapy and them leaving and two days later, they're back to where they were. You know, if I can't break it and they can't break it, you know, they've set themselves up then for that pattern to continue to lead to that new behavior. Mm. You know? So in a nutshell, dropping all of the ritual, if it's not needed, if the client wants it, give it to them. But in essence, be congruent with the client, with what they're thinking. Make sure you understand, you know, clear and concisely what they're thinking, what their issue is and how they think about it. 
and then tailor your work accordingly based on the language and everything else that they use to convey that to you to help just basically guide them to a new place and a new response you know Anthony Jackwin's work James Tripp's work the automatic imagination model you know and throw in some cognitive linguistics just for the hell of it just mm-hmm. just play around with the words you know because as we know when they all link in you know we know it's an automatic process it's just I think the art comes into how and where you guide it with the clients that actually come in to see you for the best result yeah. So potentially a load of waffle in there. Hopefully some of it was <laughs> conveying, you know, what, what I think and what I do. Mm. But essentially that's that's kind of where I am at this moment until obviously something else comes along and proves to me that I don't necessarily have to do all that as well. Sounds sounds like we all have done uh, quite a bit of unlearning. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> throughout the years, and 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 perhaps perhaps as a full circle thing back back to the first question. Uh, yeah. Perhaps a, a key learning from this is that probably most hypnotherapists out there uh, are doing way more than they need to do. Yeah. Um, and b- believing in a lot of stuff that they don't really have to believe in. And, and, and of course, it's, it's always a matter of developing skills and practice. But, yeah. but per- perhaps it is to a large extent about cutting the waffle. And 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 ending up with uh, with some first principles, something really really simple. I mean, I think that's a that's a great point because as I was you know speaking to um, to Adam on the break, I've told him that I've only just started delving into the work of James Braid as a, as of a, a couple of our our fellow peers, hmm. and I've bought um you know a couple of his books. I'm looking forward to getting stuck in, but I've seen mesmerism all over the forums and crystal energy healing and you know reading through and seeing that Braid had debunked those 160 years ago and he was just using basic suggestion, you know, no inductions, no nothing else. And to find him doing things on stage 150 plus years ago, purely by suggestion, sticking people to chairs, giving them amnesia, you know, um, creating hallucinations, you know, and we're still debating 160 years on what exactly hypnosis is you know and i i think you've you've hit a brilliant point there you're gonna you know maybe it is you know just cutting out all of the stuff that is you know it is waffle um as you said but for those of us who do look and research and play and test and uh, you know try to push those limits we will find out that something that we were doing that might have took five minutes now only takes 30 seconds because we didn't need 95% of what was there. Mm. But it also doesn't mean that people who go out and do the formal inductions won't be using the same processes that we do within that, that model or that context, you know, they're just applying it a different way. And essentially if I, if I do an induction with a client, I think, that's essentially what I'm doing. I just don't take as long to be able to get to, to get to that point anymore. It's, it's, it's potentially a double-edged sword all this because we, I, I think we could also easily end up being these guys who essentially climb the steep ladder off, a, you know, up a wall and we're sitting on a, on a roof and yep. we suddenly decide that, you know, we, we don't really need that. that yep. You know, we, we, so, so per, perhaps, 
playing with the rituals and doing those th- things mm-hmm. almost are a prerequisite to discovering a lot of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as long as one is experimenting and being curious and, and having a good feedback system. Or, or yeah. perhaps not. Yeah. I, you know, so. I agree. I agree. Um, um, I think that's excellent. I think that's excellent. Um, really, all that leaves me to say, Craig, Jürgen, yes. thank you both so much. So much. So generous there with, uh, with your time, your information, your sharing and everything else. Um, um, I, you know, I can't wait till this goes live and we share it. My pleasure, um, mate. It's great to be back with you. Same, same here. With that. Thank you guys for having me on. Great. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed those debates, those discussions. Um, I, and I think there was some fascinating information there, some lovely quotes um and snippets there uh, you may have detected that we actually lost jürgen for a brief period at the end of the first recording um and my sincere thanks to both jürgen and craig for sharing so much and for coming and being involved with this at all it was good having them back here on hypnosis weekly i certainly consider those two to be good pals of mine uh there's a link to the websites of all three contributors uh to this week's hypnosis weekly over at this episode's page of the hypnosis weekly website um i do have many more exciting guests that i'll be welcoming to hypnosis weekly in the coming weeks too we'll be discussing debating celebrating and above all remaining friends And to repeat, the links to and references made in these discussions will be available over at uh, this this episode page of Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Now then, next week I welcome clean language maestro Judy Reese. Things got very interesting uh, uh, during the, the sort of interview and discussion that I had because somehow Judy ended up clean languaging me in the middle of it all. Uh, She ended up even taking the reins of the podcast. We'll have to tune in next week for that. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, your comments, your suggestions and questions. So please do message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. Thanks again to Jürgen and Craig. My thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Thank you.